Yeah, Charlie, it doesn't matter much anymore. The truth of the matter is, no one doubts our power. Uh, we don't have a superpower arrangement where we uh, are, in, uh, where there's any power in the world that the President of the United States could be turned down tomorrow on almost anything, and no nation in the world is going to say, aha, the United States is weak. No one is going to fool around with the 800 pound gorilla. Um, and uh, that they wouldn't fool around with it if they weren't going to do it already. So this notion, it used to be, though, if, when you had a situation where you had two competing superpowers and we failed to enter into a circumstance where there was a, thir quote, third world country, where there was a competition for control of that country and a competition for them being in one camp or the other, then it had consequences that were real. Quite frankly, uh, if we decided tomorrow to go into anywhere or not go into anywhere, it's not going to change the calculus of uh, NATO. It's not going to change the calculus of the Russians. It's not going to change the calculus of the Chinese. And they're the things that matter to us. The distinction between Bosnia and Haiti, for example. If, if, if some of us are right on Bosnia, that uh, this ethnic <laughs> cleansing has the potential to rear its ugly head in Ukraine and in, in, in Belarus and in the former Soviet Union, where they have uh, major uh, arsenals of nuclear weapons, where they have long histories of national wars, where ethnicity dominates, uh, uh, that is a phenomenal potential consequence to the United States. If Haiti, a god-awful thing to say, if Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, it wouldn't matter a whole but lot in terms of our Hello guys, welcome to the 1804. So today we'll be going over a few things, uh, mainly an interesting article I found uh, on the CBC, which I'll share with you, um, an update on the UN Security Council meeting in New York, um, as well as uh, police riots that transpired uh, in Haiti. Um, so let's take a look, and yes, keep in mind, this is a later episode, um, so you'll probably get this if you're in um, North America. Um, Friday morning at the latest. So let's get going here. So article from CBC explaining here, Canada still hasn't seized a single dollar through its Haiti sanctions. So for first time here, I'll give you a background, um, background information on this. So um, at the time, Canada, uh, by the end of the year, so around um, November and December, had sanctioned many political actors in Haiti and um, some even uh, oligarchs. Some of those um, figures uh, consisted of uh, former Prime Minister um, Laurent Lamotte, um, politicians and um, senators such as René Célestin and Fourcan, and even oligarchs such as um, Gilbert Biggio. Um, so part of these sanctions, the idea was the um, for these sanctions was that they were contributing to the well the the Canadian reasoning for these sanctions was that they're contributing to the human humanitarian crisis in Haiti and they're involved in financing gangs, which are contributing to the crisis um, in Haiti, mainly um, kidnappings. So that post sanctions, so they can't in terms of any type of assets or finances that they have in Canada would be completely seized or they couldn't even conduct any type of financial transaction 
um, on Canadian soil. Um, so now this article comes out here um, by Evan Dyer, but shows Canada still hasn't seized a single dollar through its Haiti sanctions. And with the picture here of one of the sanctioned um, senators, Ronnie Celestin, who's got a $4.2 million house in um, Laval. And just so you guys know, no, the salary of a senator working in Haiti does not allow you to buy a um, $4.2 million house. Meaning, not like, meaning, like, it's not even enough, like, um, unless you're making money elsewhere, definitely not money from, um, by work, uh, working in the public sector um, in Haiti. So I'll take a look here and then I'll go, we'll go over it down here. Um, sanctions imposed by the federal government on 15 of Haiti's most prominent power brokers have not led to asset seizures or freezes despite the presence of those assets in Canada. So, for example, an asset like Ronnie Celestin's house, which I'm assuming he's paying some type of mortgage um, on it or some like financing insurance, seems like he's still be able to he's still able to live and um, reap the benefits of living in Canada for now. Under the pressure from the Biden administration to take the lead on Haiti and facing a request from the Haitian government to send a military force to restore order to the troubled island, the government of Justin Trudeau had, has instead based its approach on sanctioning individuals it claims are involved in the country country's ongoing humanitarian crisis. This cannot be impo an imposed solution from the outside. The, the helpful friend bringing forth aid, Prime Minister Trudeau told the Francophonie Summit in Tunisia in November. This is why we're proceeding with sanctions. In fact, Canadian officials have criticized other countries for not following Canada's approach, which is true because um, if you look at most of these uh, politicians or most of the... Uh, yeah, most of the Haitian politicians, in terms of like having an effect on these sanctions, which I I've mentioned many times... They definitely have more an effect if the U.S. took sanctions against them rather than Canada or any other country. And I'd even put um, the Dominican Republic ahead of uh, Canada um, in that regard in terms of having effect in, in choking out any type of financing to gangs or illicit activity. Uh, mainly because most of their time spent outside of Haiti is in the U.S. Some of them have dual citizenship. Um um, so, so Amer like they're American uh, citizens or hold American visas as well. But C so, but CBC has learned that despite the presence of assets in Canada that could be sanctioned, not a single dollar belonging to any of the fifteen prominent Haitians sanctioned by Canada has been frozen or seized. So that house that everybody knows by now, <clears throat> again in the in this picture, Rony Celestin's house. Based on this article, seems that it has not um, been seized, even though um, Canada uh, put those sanctions. So let's take a look why. Uh, Monique Kleska is a former UN official and prominent member of Haiti's Montana Accord, a coalition that seeks to unite the country's op opposition of, to the unelected Prime Minister Ayan Henry. Haiti has been swamped by gang violence since the assassination of its president, Jovenel Moïse, in July 2021. <clears throat> Excuse me. She said that when Canada first began sanctioning members of Haiti's political elite in early November of last year, many Haitians welcomed the news. It made huge news and the reaction was, the f was that finally something was happening, she told CBC News from Port-au-Prince. 
I think people rejoice because of that. At least somebody's doing something. That is one of the policies that we had been urging that the partners should follow the money and should apply laws in their countries. Kleska said it came as a shock to learn that the sanctions have not produced any real action. I'm surprised because Canada is a state and a country that has functioning government. Canada has made a big deal about those sanctions, she said. When I say it made a big deal, when I say it has made a big deal about it, we have the Minister Jody who has talked about it, Prime Minister Trudeau who has talked about it, and the Ambassador who has talked about it. So, which is true, all these sanctions were imposed. Um, were imposed. Mélenchonie, Trudeau, and Carrière were even <clears throat> advocating and, you could say, backing up these sanctions, yet there has not been any effect, which now begs me the questions, what was, in terms of, in Canada's standpoint, what was the real intentions of posing these sanctions? Um, and in that, in terms of intentions, was it political play, which we've been um, alluding to maybe, that this might be something... Interest to look good on the international level, and there might be some un- underlying um, reason for that. Um, political play could be, in fact, a thing, considering that there actually has been zero effects, and it's not like these sanctions were posed on, like, let's just say January twenty fourth, twenty fifth, or any time this week. Um, these saying it's been months now. It's been months now of the same um, of these sanctions being placed, and yet there has nothing um, to be done. So there's definitely. Uh, People should definitely be questioning the real in, the questioning the real intention of Canada's sanctions on these Haitian politicians, um, considering the fact that um, even then, uh, let's be clear, um, in terms of the sanctions they posed, um, these gangs that, that like these these politicians were always operating with gangs or financing gangs, the ones that they sanction. So the timing of it now, when they started sanctioning in November, that should be definitely questioned. Um, secondly, as well, <clears throat> um, secondly, as well, too, um, even with these sanctions, not single dollar SC. So now there hasn't been follow up questions to this article, which I'm I'm going to be uh, interested to see uh, a response from Prime Minister Trudeau or mainly specifically um, Melanie Jolie. On these, because since a single dollar has not been seized, um, at the same time, um, at the same time, the, what does this mean for um, the people in Haiti? Well, then again, already these are the the effects of the Canadian sanctions would have been minimal considering the big picture. Um, without the, especially without the um. Um, the full cooperation with the United States by matching the sanctions that Canada had put against these uh, political actors. Um, but this should be, it's kind of shocking in a sense that like there's all this news and propped up and yet there hasn't been real action. And um, I've always been told to um, like, don't watch what they don't listen to what they say, but watch what, what they do, like watch pe- what people's actions instead of what they say. And really what you can see here is the same really, um, same old stuff from the international community. Not really help, and nor do they owe um, Haiti any type of help. But then again, you can see that this type of help is under the guy. This type of international help is is seen as a good thing. But really, there seems to be um, different um, underlying intent. Because you just have to use your head, really. Like, you just um, use common sense and think, okay, well... 
Canada put these sanctions on these political actors, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't the work be done to actually seize those assets? Why go through this whole announcement, um, talking about giving a more morality speech on how um, democracy needs to be restored and all that shit, and yet there hasn't been any effort on Canadian soil um, to do anything about it, even though sanctions weren't even asked by the Haitian population. It was then, then again, yes, it came. I, um, as a consensus uh, at the United Nations table, um, but they're not really following up with those um, with those actions as well. Um, so then again, and th- these type of things can and it's dangerous because these type of things too leave the door wide open for quote unquote conspiracy theories in the sense that just to me, quickly glancing at this, this looks like okay, well, we're not taking. We took sanctions, but we're not actually um, taking action and putting into action means either. okay, well, we're still we're buddy buddies with these political actors or we don't have any real intention in imposing these sanctions because we have an underlying intent. So there's definitely something going on um, um, on here, especially from a country like Canada. It's a serious, um, serious country. Um, there's definitely something going on, I think, in at least in my opinion. We'll see what goes on. But I'll, let me finish the article here. Even though the government has not seized or frozen any assets belonging to the 15 men targeted by sanctions, Julie's department says the sanctions still have had an effect. Sanctioned individuals are subject to, dealing, to dealings bans, said a global affairs spokesperson. As a result, listed individuals cannot access Canada's financial system and businesses. Okay. Um, they can't conduct financial activities or transactions in Canada or with other Canadians. So I'll read that again. So spokesperson for global affairs for global affairs saying as a result of these sanctions, these individuals can't access any financial systems and businesses. Um, they can't conduct financial activities or transactions in Canada. Okay, so in terms of the assets being frozen, um, seems like there's none or has been reported that there's none here. So stuff like accessing banks or even like um, buying coffee at a coffee shop seems like they wouldn't be able to um, to do so. Um, doing so is a criminal offense. This creates a massive opportunity cost for individuals who might otherwise have engaged in business dealings. So here it says the way this 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 the sentence frame seems to me that. In terms of like the the ban or cannot access, it's either like I don't know if they mean like they cannot access, meaning if they try to make a payment, it won't work, or meaning like if they try and make any type of financial transaction in Canada, it'll work. But since they're sanctioned, um, it's illegal for them to do so. Therefore, they'd be committing a criminal act and they could face consequences on Canadian soil. So the article doesn't specify how exactly the sanction works, whether or not they're completely banned or if they can go buy something at Best Buy or Tim Hortons, go to coffee shop, get something. But then if it were to find out if the government or somehow whatever, whichever agency is responsible to oversee this were to find out that they had um, made a transaction, then in that case, they would be um, they would suffer consequences. It does not specify that I'm in here. In other words, sanctioned individuals are not going to be able to do anything with Canada. They are pariahs. And when we impose sanctions in coordination with our allies, as we have done with the United States, 
these individuals have practically nowhere left to go. Kleska agreed that the sanctions have hurt the reputation of politicians affected, which is true. These sanctions can affect the reputation of politicians, but I want to be clear, like people that know these politicians and know how um, government officials work in Haiti, um, the ones that are close to um close to them kind of knew the reputation and know that some of these guys or if not half at least half of these guys are in some time of criminal activity either financing gangs or drug running um but now their reputation on the international community maybe people that don't know about uh, much that don't know much about haitian politicians yes definitely ruined their reputation on an international stage because it brought the spotlight to them um as well so Recent developments suggest that at least some of those 15 individuals are shaving under the sanctions. Former Haitian PM Laurent Lamont has threatened legal action against the government of Canada. This week, former PM Jean Rissian wrote to the Secretary General of the United Nations to protest Canada's sanctions. He said he's retained a Canadian law firm to represent him. Kleska said the shame may even be putting a crimp in some of the men's political plans as Haiti's oligarch jockeys to eventually replace the unpopular Henri. These people were the ones who were probably uh, thinking of preparing their campaigns for whenever there are elect elections, said Kleska. Some of them used to speak quite loudly, and some of them since being sanctioned have stopped speaking publicly. Financial institutions always reluctant to fall out with the government officials, especially the U.S., can also refuse to do business with sanctioned individuals. This impedes them from supporting corruption and illegal activities of armed gangs, said Global Affairs spokesperson. This is having a real impact on the ground. Haiti's newspaper's record, Le Nouvelliste, characterizes sanctions as causing a political earthquake. But while they're working with Canada's sanctions as better than nothing, many Haitians had hoped to see those enrich themselves at their expense, compelled to pay up. Sanctions are kind of like a smoke screen. Sanctions are kind of like a smoke screen to justify that yes, Canada is taking a leadership role," said Haitian Canadian France Andre, a member of Solidarité Québec Haïti. He first brought to light 2020 purchase of extravagant villa in Laval sur le lac, Quebec. By now, sanctioned Haitian Senator Ronnie Celestin. Celestin's wife, Marie Louisa Aubin Celestin, is one of five Haitian consuls in Montreal. Her name went on the deed for the cash purchase on the $4.25 million house in December 2020. Five months later, she shared a tile to the house with her husband. So Stan has argued that the source of his wealth and his business interest in Petrogas IHC in Petrogas, sorry, Jesus, in Petrogas IT, a company with a website that describes major global operations, including hundreds of oil rigs and dozens of refineries, but a search by CBC News found no evidence of any such large-scale business. The U.S. Treasury Department says the real source of citizens' wealth is drug trafficking. Like, and then again, like, no one, like, no one has a salary. They're not paying you millions to... Um, in Haiti to be a senator. Like, no one's making that kind of money. Brian E. Nelson, Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence last month, described Celestine and another Haitian senator as corrupt Haitian politicians abusing their power to further drug trafficking activities across the region. 
the Treasury Department accused of selling trafficking drugs from Venezuela into Haiti, and then they're on the U.S. and then the Bahamas. Analysts said the Celeste mentioned Laval is an obvious example of corruptly acquired asset, and the government of Canada should have moved against it as soon as the sanctions took effect. Canada has to show that they have taken action, he said. Seize the assets, say, say how much the assets are worth, and send it back to legitimate Haitians in Haiti. Kleskat said the Quebecville has become a well-known symbol of corruption in Haiti. It is an emblematic case and the most obvious one. So I think it behooves Canada to explain why it hasn't moved forward with this case in particular, as well as all the others, she said. So, yeah, that's crazy. So dude still has his house. So now begs the question, too, like, do these sanctions, the American sanctions, do they really have an effect on these politicians, too? And even the sections taken by on um, Martelly. Uh, Bijou and Lamot, do they really have an effect? Because based on this article, seems like it's not really doing anything. So we'll see how this goes. Something we'll definitely keep an eye on. If the um, Canada will actually do something with these, um, actually take effect with these sanctions. So, second story I wanted to focus on here is uh, the Security Council meeting. Um, as Security Council meets again on Haiti, Lalume is still pushing for foreign intervention. Those of you who don't know about the Security Council meeting, it's essentially just a meeting taking at the UN New York discussing security issues with um, some certain countries. Um, there's Somalia, Haiti, uh, I believe there's definitely a few other countries, but the one on Haiti. They just kind of discuss and give updates on what's going on and what are possible solutions. And each country, a representative of the countries involved, give their two cents on what they, what they, their thoughts and what they believe could be a, a good solution, as well as raise other questions too. So, on January twenty fourth, the United Nations Security Council again reviewed the situation in Haiti at the request of the Security General Antonio Guterres, who continues to pressure for foreign military intervention into the country of 12 million. In addition to the five current members, the US, Russia, China, and France, and the UK, and 10 rotating members newly joined this month by Ecuador, Japan, Malta, Mozambique, and Switzerland, the meaning heard statements from Canada, the DR, and Haiti. Elena Lim Guterres, a missionary to Haiti and the outgoing chief of the UN's integrated office in Haiti, gave the only briefers report to the meeting which was chaired this month by Japan, the last UNSC meeting on Haiti on December 21st, 2022. Also had briefings by Gabon's ambassador, Michel Zanvier Biang, and journalist Kimai. As usual, the Binu chief began with opening summary of Haiti's dysfunction. Haiti-related violence has reached levels not seen in decades. She began murders and kidnappings increase for a fourth consecutive year. 1,359 kidnappings were recorded in 2022 more than doubling the record in 2021, averaging roughly four per day. So this is just a statement from, she's trying, she's trying to, statement from uh, Lalim. Um, she announced that BNU with the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights would soon release reports of on the turf wars involving two gang coalitions, namely the G9 coalition JPEP, saying their battles were part of the well-defined strategies to design to subjugate populations and expand territorial control. 
Nowhere did she highlight the Giants Coalition explicitly anti-crime agenda versus GPEP kidnapping criminal gang composition of Tilapri, Izo, Frangemarzo, and Vitalom. So here again, um, so she said here that they're waiting on a so there's going about the release a report it's revolving the uh, turf wars involving um, gangs namely the g9 coalition and gpep which if you guys are i've seen previous episode the g9 coalition and gpep is the gang of jimmy chelizier however it's not like the normal gangs you see terrorizing the haitian population they're actually fighting against um these actual gangs that are conducting um kidnappings um, killings rapes and at the same time they're trying to protect the poor neighborhoods from the um from these gangs as well um so if you recall and if you've seen the another vision um documentary by Atilibauté, you'll see that in the documentary in the first episode um where um the rnd de ash used the um had reported that Jimmy Chirizier had committed a massacre in La Saline, which was then used by the mainstream media and they ran with it and which is essentially pinned Jimmy Chirizier as the main gang um problem in Haiti when it comes to gangs. Um, so here you see that soon there'll be a release of a report of turf wars involving two gang coalitions, namely G9 and GPEP. But never in her, that's even never come out of her mouth um, that there's other gangs in Haiti. Like, they keep, they even sanctioned Jimmy Cherizier. Um, but there's no mention of Tilapri, who literally was, they're the ones that literally um, had kidnapped those missionaries, those American missionaries about two years ago. Um, and even full force put responsibility. And even with that, too, um, the United States, um, launched a, not investigation i'd have to go look into it but essentially um looking out for their arrest per se even though they wouldn't be able to leave um, um haitian soil um so she keeps mentioning so this report that's gonna talk about the g9 coalition gpep we'll see what says what it says in that report because really the the narrative is not essentially it's not that Jim Chirier is causing havoc. He's actually trying, um, he's actually fighting against the system in that sense and protecting neighborhoods, um, from these types of um, the actual real gangs like Tilapri, Izo, and Frangemarzo. And it's interesting to see that um, this continued narrative because the Security Council has been there since 2019. Um, I think uh, once we get to September, it'll be officially four years. Yet there has not been any talks or even um, some words from Ladim's mouth regarding the gangs of Tilapri, Izo, Fuangemarzo, and Vitalom. So, and then again, this is something where you can just use your head here. All these gangs, and then where the Tilapri was in Izo and all these Katsumarzo, which are responsible for most of the kidnappings in Haiti are not even getting to be announced or mentioned in potentially mentioned in this report yet the guy that's actually trying to help although the mainstream is not going to portray it that way i'm not naive um but the guy that's actually um trying to help and actually is for the people that's the report <laughs> the report that's going to come out um soon will be based on him and not the actual shit disturb is gone
So, and this, and again, if you're new here, this is to show you, this is how the international community works with mainstream media. Um, you can frame a type of story, people will read it. And then that once people read it, they'll shape their opinion and have their views on that. Um, so another way to really manufacture consent, because now if I were to say, um, and there's no information to say, like if I were to say, if people knew that these gangs were responsible for most of the kidnappings and most of the stuff going on, and they knew that Jimmy Shirizia was more of a revolutionary figure rather than a gang leader, um, the opinion, the public opinion of people would be um, vastly different than what I'm suspecting their opinions are of of what's going on in Haiti today, mainly related to gang activities. So we'll continue here. Without naming any specific perpetrators, Lalim reported that gangs have increasingly resorted to the deliberate killing of men, women, and children with sniper positions on uh, rooftops. Dozens of women and children as young as 10 years old have been brutally raped as a tactic to spread fear and destroyed the social fabric of communities under the control of rival gangs. Bezing, oh my God, besieging and displacing whole populations already living in extreme poverty gangs have in intentionally blocked access to food, water, and a myth of cholera outbreak health services. Close to 5 million people are facing conditions of acute hunger across the country, and while 90% of schools are now operating, thousands of children, especially those living in gang-affected areas, are yet to start school. The humanitarian response plan will likely be close to double that of 2022. Valim never laid any blame for the dreadful scenario she described on the government of de facto Prime Minister Ayan Henry. On the contrary, she explicitly lauded at the government by pointing to a promising key development, the formation of the National Consensus Agreement for Inclusion, Transition, and Transparent Elections, supported, she claimed, by a broad spectrum of political figures, civil societies, religious authorities, which, again, these religious authorities, there was articles coming out, a lot of Catholic priests were involved in running guns to gangs. So, religious authorities, who know if their heart's in the right place in this situation, but... Yep, religious authorities, trade unions, and obviously the private sector. And then again, the private sector is also responsible for the gangs um, in Haiti. Because there's, there's, you can, there's, t there's two different kind of gangs. There's the ones literally just, there's normal gangs that they're just doing whatever they want. There's not really a head um, that's really influencing them. They kind of, you could have just started a gang and you're either selling drugs or guns. There's the gangs from the private sector <clears throat> itself, so paid by entrepreneurs, private sector in Haiti to commit acts of crimes against other businesses or protect their business in that sense. There's the international community um, financing, which I believe in terms of the financing of proxy wars, um, in a sense, trying to create <clears throat> NYSA um, proxy wars or, pro um, or proxy um, gangs trying to create a situation or a problem so you can find a reason to go fix that problem. So in the case of Haiti, create a gang problem. And then what's the fix? Well, international in intervention. Let's go in and get rid of these gangs. And then there's the gangs of um, really, you could say, um, honestly, politicians. Um, which can coincide with the business, the private sector as well. But you got the gangs of politicians that carry out 
their types um any type of threats or um <clears throat> any type any really anything they wish to throughout either kidnapping threat or steal um so there's different sorts of gangs that when you go down you, when you break it down look at Haiti's situation she did not mention that the new coalition was met with a chorus of outrage, ridicule, and commendation in the Haitian press, social media, and political class, particularly from Henri's arch-rival coalition, the Montana Accord. Several of the consensus signers, like the Haitian Boy Scouts, disavowed ever signing the new political accord, which conveniently was sealed as the December 21st UNSC meeting took place. And one man signed on behalf of three different organizations. On the contrary, Lalim claimed adherence, adherence are growing every day. So the narrative is completely different from what Lalim is presenting to compare to what the actual reality is. So we'll see how that goes. They're still pushing for an intervention. Um, however, I'll show you in this article here. Um, you see that um, U.S. and Canada is not necessarily interested in sending armed forces to Haiti. It's not necessarily new, um, but I'll give you some statements from um, UN ambassador here. Um, Canada's UN ambassador, Rob Ray, said that the world needs to learn from all previous military interventions in Haiti, which failed to bring long-term stability to the country and ensure that in the future solutions must be had by Haitians and Haitian institutions. Haitian Prime Minister Ayala Henry and the country's Council of Ministers sent an urgent appeal October 7th calling for the immediate deployment of specialized armed force in sufficient quantity to stop the crisis caused par partly by the criminal actors of armed gangs. So, nothing new here. Um, no one really, the United States doesn't really want to, like, U.S. doesn't want to send their troops in Haitians on Haitian soil, nor do I think um, it's a priority for them right now, and even Canada as well, which is why we saw um, earlier last year, late last year, the push from Trudeau uh, meeting with the CARICOM states and trying to see if, there was, um, if they could lead some type of um, um, intervention or um, of community help. And even now, um, Tuesday... Um, this is from CELAC. And CELAC, if you don't know, it's the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, similar to the OAS, but it does not have the U.S. as its head or involved in it. Um, but even INRI had urged member countries to participate in an international force, similar to what Trudeau had um, asked the CARICOM, the Caribbean states, to do. Um so it seems that if there were and so it looked to me now that the US in terms of like um boots on the ground from Haiti or Canada, um not Haiti or Canada, US or Canada seems to be completely out the window. Now an international force or training from the Caribbean or Latin American countries seems to still be a possibility. Um de facto Prime Minister Alien Henri is still um um pushing for it. Um even though that there's other ways that, and that's the thing again, like they're asking for, they're asking for help in the international community, but there's other ways you can tackle um, uh, gang issues um, in Haiti. Um, obviously, main thing, funding for the police. Um, obviously, militarization, which Haiti is one of the few countries in the world that does not have a military. 
Um, and and this brought me to this article here. And so President El Salvador Bukele won elections in 2019. And similar to Haiti, um, El Salvador had um, similar gang problems, um, but wider gang problems where this this journal here states that there's over 70,000 gangs just operating in the country. So when we're talking about gang problems, it's kind of like it's it's almost a culture in El Salvador. Um, and the reason I brought this up is that he tackled them. He tried to um, tackle the gang issues differently. And I want to draw some parallels here with um, El Salvador and Haiti here. So. President Nayib Bukele, who assumed office in June 2019, had declared that his administration is taking special measures to combat gang and homicides. He has also vowed to improve safety and bring more jobs to El Salvador. This article examined the trends in the recent crackdown and the consequences of such policies. It's not the first time Salvadoran government has implemented Manodura policies. Francisco Flores launched Iron Fist strategies, which appealed to the public's demand for the need to combat gangs, crime, and violence. President Tony Saka, who served from 20, uh, 2004 to 2009, learned from lessons of his predecessors and doubled down on tough and crime strategies. Other administrations like Mauricio Funes from left-wing for uh, Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front negotiated truce between the gangs and the government between 2012 and 2014, which this is crazy to me, because here you see, which the gang is so big that they actually, the government actually negotiate with gangs in the country rather than eliminating them, which in this case, I don't think Haiti needs a solution like that, even already with the fact that politicians already buddy-buddy with these gangs or some of them are even financing it. Um, already in this case, I don't think it would be a good idea um, for Haitians or Haiti government, if you were to come to this, to take this type of approach. The government wanted to decrease the number of homicides while the gang leaders wanted to be transferred to lower security prisons and have better conditions behind bars. The government did not publicly acknowledge the truce and later arrested truce negotiators after the breakdown of the agreement. <laughs> while homicides dropped because of the truce, El Salvador became the most violent country in the world in 2015 with a homicide rate of more than 100 per 100,000 inhabitants. In 2015, the Salvadoran Supreme Court labeled gangs as terrorists. This enabled El Salvadoran Sanchez's sharing administration, so the president before Bukele, to justify the crackdown against gangs and the deployment of military. It also signaled the public that the government treated gangs as a top security level, uh, security threat. So this I agree with, label them as terrorists, but then um, by that saying, they justify the deployment of the military. But the thing with Haiti is there's only the national police, there's no military. And with military, obviously you get military equipment like tanks, um, armored, other armored vehicles and other type of equipment. Um, the Haitian National Police are not trained to use a lot of these type of military equipment. Obviously, things like assault rifles, um, they're trained to use. But the type of equipment that the military will be able to um, use and to remove gangs um, is not the same that the Haitian National Police has. So. 
Oh, yeah. So while the Bukele administration extended the state of emergency and arrested more than 50,000 gang members, history reveals that tough on crime strategies have unintended consequences. First, scholars noted that the Salvadorian government has arrested, rearrested, and released suspected gang members before. The arrest rates can help signal the public that the government is winning war against gangs where the underlying issues contribute to gang membership, crime, and violence are not being solved. Second, the crackdowns have led to, to proliferation in the prison population. In 2000, El Salvador had a prison population of 7,754 people. By 2010, the prison population spiked to 24,662 inmates. In 2020, El Salvador had a prison population of 37,190, a rate of 572 per 100,000 inhabitants. Today, El Salvador has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Salvadorian prisons function as a school of crime, and they have enabled gangs to better organize. So, see here, um, the gang activities have lowered in El Salvador. However, they are still um, have an issue. But just to show, it is a bit more, um, it's a tougher task than it is. And But this, again, shows me that I think proper funding you can take action from within rather than asking the international community to come in and help. Because at the end of the day, if Haiti had, if money goes into training Haitian National Police, building up the military, and actually financing and upholding the military, um, I'm confident to believe that it would be an e um, easier fix. And if we, if we definitely have the bodies to do so into financing these gangs. At the end of the day, um, we don't have the same, Haiti doesn't have the same gang issues as El Salvador did. Although they're still both bad, El Salvador is way worse in the sense that there's, um, before um, 2019, the there was about 100 homicides per 100,000 people in El Salvador, which is not the case for Haiti, which most of the gang activities is mainly um, um, kidnappings. Last thing I wanted to look at here is there's been... Um, so this is from Jake Johnson, um, a journalist. Um, he said, Ariel Henry, Haiti's de facto prime minister, is trapped on the tarmac at Port-au-Prince Airport. Protesting police officers have it surrounded, some broke inside. Earlier, police attacked Henry's residence. A response to the killing of six officers yesterday, though it's been building for years. So you can see down here, things are moving. Follow the tweet. Things are moving fast and much that is still very much unclear. After multiple hours, now hearing that Henri has made it out of the airport to go where. So we don't know where dude went, but he was stuck in Port-au-Prince. Um, now, these protests weren't directed specifically towards him, but they're based off with the situation in Haiti and the gang activity here. Um, so I'll read it to you. I'll just give you a quick summary. La police nationale d'Haïti a vécu une nouvelle journée de somme le mercredi 25 janvier. Six policiers ont été exécutés à Lyoncourt par des bandits armés. So, basically, six, six police officers died by armed gangs. On prend dans les gangs de Savien et Mouadoué. La mort de ces agents ajoutée à celle de sept autres tués à Carrefour et à Métivier. And there was also seven others that were killed last week, early during the week, um, by gangs as well. So, police officers losing their life. Des barricades venues enflammées et ont été dirigées à centre Philippe-Port-Prince et Nazon-Boudon à l'une d'Allemagne-Pétionville. Ils activaient les formes à transport 
commun et perturbé. So yeah, this was mainly because of these protests that were going on. Like, I'll show you a clip here. This is from the airport. So we'll see how this goes. Um, that's mainly the situation. Thank you guys for tuning in. Please like and subscribe, and I'll see you guys next week. Take care.